Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 10 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Catherine of Valois, Chapter 2, Part 2. The precise time when Catherine's love led her to espouse the Welsh soldier, it is impossible to ascertain. What priest married them, and in what holy place their hands were united, no document exists to prove. And it is strange that Henry the Seventh, with all his elaborate boast of royal descent, should not have left some intimation of the time and place of the marriage of Catherine and Owen. All chroniclers of the Tudor era assert confidently that the marriage of the Queen Mother and Owen Tudor was at least tacitly acknowledged in the sixth year of her son's reign. Modern historians implicitly follow them, yet there was not a shadow of acknowledgment of the marriage. But in the sixth year of her son's reign, some suspicions arose in the mind of the protector, Humphrey of Gloucester, that the queen meant to degrade herself by an unsuitable alliance, and a severe statute was enacted, threatening with the heaviest penalties, anyone who should dare to marry a queen dowager, or any lady who held lands of the crown, without the consent of the king and his council. It is usually affirmed, that the regency had ascertained that the queen was married when this law was enacted. It is possible that such might be the case, but they had not assuredly discovered the object of her attachment. Otherwise, would they have suffered Owen to abide as an inmate of Catherine's household, till at least within the last six months of her life? A fact incontestably proved by the minutes of the Privy Council. He was clerk of her wardrobe, according to the assertion of a great historical antiquary. Soon after the prohibitory statute was passed, the queen brought an action against the Bishop of Carlisle for some encroachment on her dower lands. Her cause was carried on in her own name, without the slightest allusion to any second husband. An office like that borne by Owen Tudor was peculiarly liable to promote personal acquaintance between the queen and him. As clerk of the wardrobe, it was Owen's office not only to guard the queen's jewels from robbery, but to pay for, if not purchase, all materials for her dress. Many serious consultations might have taken place on occasion of every new purchase or payment as to the colors and style most becoming to the royal beauty, and compliments might be implied which the lowly lover could have no other opportunity of expressing. The only notice that occurs of Catherine from the third year of her infant's reign, till 1436, is that her son, then in his seventh year, by the advice of his governess, Alice Bottler, presented his mother for a New Year's gift, with a ruby ring given him by his uncle, the Duke of Bedford. Catherine's life of retirement enabled her to conceal her marriage for many years, and to give birth, 
without any very notorious scandal, to three sons successively. The eldest was born at the royal manor house of Haddam. From the place of his birth, he is called Edmund of Haddam. The second is Jasper of Hatfield, from another of the royal residences. The third, Owen, first saw the light at some inconvenient season, when Catherine was forced to appear at the royal palace of Westminster. The babe was carried at once into the monastery, where he was reared, and afterwards professed a monk. While Catherine was devoting herself to conjugal affection and maternal duties, performed by stealth, her royal son was crowned, in his eighth year, King of England, at Westminster, with great pomp, in which his mother took no share. The next year he crossed the sea, in order to be crowned at Paris. It is natural to suppose that Queen Catherine accompanied her son, and supported his claims on her native crown, by her personal influence, but no traces are to be found of her presence. Her mother was alive in Paris, full of years, and, it must be added, of dishonors. The English princes and lords did not condescend to introduce their little king to the degraded woman, and the maternal grandmother of Henry the Sixth became first known to the son of her daughter, by kissing her hand and making a reverential curtsy to him at a crocie window of the Hotel de Saint-Paul, after which it was not considered decent to forbid the young king's request to visit her, and an interview took place between Queen Isabeau and her grandson. Time wore on, and one disaster to the English in France followed another. They evacuated Paris just three days before the wicked Queen Isabeau died. There was scarcely a person found to bury this once powerful princess. Catherine, though in the prime of life, being but thirty-five, survived her wretched mother only one year. A strong suspicion of the queen's connection with Tudor seems to have been first excited in the minds of Henry V's guardians, towards the end of the summer of 1436, at which time Catherine either took refuge in the Abbey of Bermondsey, or was sent there under some restraint. This event is supposed to have occurred just after the birth of her little daughter, Margaret, who lived but a few days. Anxiety of mind threw the queen into declining health, and she remained very ill at Bermondsey during the autumn. The high spirit of the Duke of Gloucester, says one of our historians, could not brook her marriage, neither the beauty of Tudor's person, nor his genealogy deduced, from Cadwallader King's, could shield him or the queen from a sharp persecution as soon as the match was discovered. The children, to whom Queen Catherine had previously given birth in secret, were torn from her by the orders of the council, and consigned to the keeping of a sister of the Earl of Suffolk. The cruelty perhaps hastened the death of the unfortunate queen. The pitying nuns who attended her declared she was a sincere penitent, and among all other small sins, she expressed the deepest contrition for having disobeyed her royal husband Henry V, and perversely chosen the forbidden castle of Windsor as the birthplace of the heir of England. In her youth, Catherine had evidently scorned the astrological oracle, that Henry of Windsor shall lose all that Henry of Monmouth had gained. But now, although the late disasters in France, and the lowering prospects in England, were plainly the natural consequences of a thirty years' war, superstition seized on the mind that had formerly rejected it, and Catherine, weakened by sorrow and suffering, devoutly believed that her forbidden accouchment at Windsor Castle 
was the reason of the ill fortune of her son, Henry the Sixth, and duly repented of her supposed crime on her deathbed. While languishing between life and death, Catherine made her will, in terms which fully denote the deep depression of her spirits. The last will of Queen Catherine, made unto our sovereign lord, her son, upon her departing out of this world. Right high and mighty prince, and my full redoubted lord, and full entirely beloved son, in due humble wise, with full hearty natural blessing, I commend me to your highness. To the which please to be certified, that before the silent and fearful conclusion of this long grievous malady, in which I have been long and yet am, troubled and vexed by the visitation of God, to whom be thanking and laud in all his gifts, I purpose, by the grace of God, and under your succor, protection and comfort, in whom only, among all other earthly, stands all my trust, to ordain and dispose of my testament, both for my soul and my body. And I trust fully, and am right sure, that among all creatures earthly, ye best may, and will best tender and favor my will, in ordaining for my soul and body, in seeing that my debts be paid, and my servants girdened, and in tender and favorable fulfilling of mine intent. Wherefore, tenderly I beseech you, at the reverence of God, and upon my full hearty blessing, that to my perpetual comfort and health of soul and body, of your abundant and special grace, in full remedy of all means, that in any wise may amnentize, or deface the effect of my last purpose and intent, grant at my humble prayer and request, to be my executor, and to depute and assign such persons to be under you of your servants, or of mine, or of both, as it shall like you to choose them, which I remit fully to your disposition and election. Beseeching you also, at the reverence of our Lord God, and the full entire blessing of me, your mother, that, this done, ye tenderly and benignly grant my supplication and request, contained particularly in the articles ensuing. And if tender audience and favorable assent shall be given by so benign and merciful a lord and son to such a mother, being in at so piteous point of so grievous a malady, I remit to your full, high, wise, and noble discretion, and to the conscience of every creature that knoweth the laws of God and of nature, that if the mother should have more favor than a strange person, I remit, refer or appeal to the same. From the perusal of this solemn exhortation, a conclusion would naturally be drawn, that it was the preface to the earnest request of Catherine, for mercy to her husband, and nurture for her motherless infants. Yet the articles or items which follow, contain not the slightest allusion to them. All her anxiety seems to be centered, firstly, in the payment of her creditors, without which she seems convinced that her soul will never get free secondly, in obtaining many prayers and masses for her soul, and thirdly, in payments being made and rewards given to her servants. If Catherine, by this mysterious document, really made any provision for her helpless family, it is all comprised in the dark hints to her son of acting, according to his noble discretion and her intents, which intention, perhaps, had been confided to the young king in some interview previously to her imprisonment. There is no enumeration of property in the items that follow, excepting the portion of income due at the day of her departing. 
she declares that her soul shall pass as naked as desolate and as willing to be scourged as the poorest soul god ever formed this piteous exhortation to her son was written or dictated a few hours before her death yet even at her last gasp she evidently dared not break regal etiquette so far as to name to her son her plebeian lord or her young children whilst this pathetic document was in course of preparation the dying queen received a token of remembrance from her son king henry on new year's day consisting of a tablet of gold weighing thirteen ounces on which was a crucifix set with pearls and sapphires it was bought of john pattisby goldsmith and was sent to catherine at bermondsey to use the poor queen's own pathetic words the silent and fearful conclusion of her long grievous malady took place on the third of january fourteen thirty seven when the news was brought to the young sovereign of his mother's death he was on his throne presiding at parliament power was given to the poor queen's two persecutors the cardinal of winchester and humphrey duke of gloucester to perform the office of executors catherine was buried with all the pomp usual to her high station her body was removed to the church of her patroness st catherine by the tower where it laid in state february eighteenth fourteen thirty seven it then rested at st paul's and was finally honorably buried in our lady's chapel at westminster abbey henry the sixth piously erected an altar tomb to her memory on which was engraved a latin epitaph in all probability the same preserved in the pages of william worcester of which the following is a translation death daring spoiler of the world has laid within this tomb the noble clay that shrined queen catherine's soul from the french king derived of our fifth henry wife of the sixth henry mother as maid and widow both a perfect flower of modesty esteemed here happy england brought she forth that king on whose auspicious life thy wheel depends and reft of whom thy bliss would soon decay joy of this land and brightness of her own glory of mothers to her people dear a follower sincere of the true faith heaven and our earth combine alike to praise this woman who adorns them both and now earth by her offspring by her virtues heaven in the fourteen hundred thirty-seventh year first month's third day her life drew to its close and this queen's soul beyond the starry sphere in heaven received for i reigns blissfully this original epitaph has hitherto escaped all modern historians but it is very probable that as it implied the fact that catherine died a widow and not a wife it occasioned the demolition of the tomb under the reign of her grandson owen tudor had been put in newgate when catherine was sent to bermondsey from thence he had escaped and was at large at daventry in the july following her death when the king summoned him before his council saying that he willed that owen tudor that which dwelled with his mother queen catherine should come into his presence owen refused to come unless he had a safe conduct free to come and free to go the council gave the king's verbal promise that he should depart unharmed owen vowed he would not venture himself within their reach without a written promise this was granted when he hastened to london and threw himself into the sanctuary at westminster where he remained many days eschewing as a document of the privy council says 
to leave it, although many persons, out of friendship and fellowship, stirred him to come out thereof, and disport himself, in the tavern at Westminster Gate. Here, when on duty at Westminster Palace, Owen had evidently been accustomed to resort, and, as a retired soldier, tell over, with boon companions, all his tales of Agincourt. He was right to resist the temptation of disporting himself, for the council certainly meant to entrap him there. At last, he heard that the young king was heavily informed of him, or was listening to serious charges against him. Upon which Owen suddenly appeared before the privy council, then sitting in the chapel chamber at Kennington Palace, and defended himself with such manliness and spirit that the king set him at liberty. Owen immediately retired into Wales, but the Duke of Gloucester, with a base prevarication perfectly inconsistent with the high character bestowed on him in history, sent after him, and, in despite of the double safe conduct, he had him consigned to the tender mercies of the Earl of Suffolk, in the dungeons of the royal castle of Wallingford, under the pretense of having broken prison. The Lord Constable of England, Beaumont, was paid twenty marks for the expenses he had incurred in catching and keeping Owen, his priest and servant. The place where the Privy Council met to arrange this business is rather remarkable. It was transacted in the secret chamber belonging to the Cardinal Beaufort as Bishop of Winchester in the Priory of St. Mary's Overy. There were present in this secret conclave the Lord Cardinal, the Lord Chancellor, the Earl of Suffolk, the Treasurer, Lord Hungerford, and John Stowerton Knight. It was found convenient to remand Owen back from Wallingford Castle to Newgate, where, it may be remembered, his priest and servant were committed. No sooner were these three persons in Newgate once more than its walls were found inefficient to detain them. They all made a second escape, after wounding foully their jailer, as an old manuscript in the Harleian collection declares. Owen laid his plans so successfully, this second time of breaking out of Newgate, that he was not retaken, but fled with his faithful adherence to the fastnesses of North Wales, where he waited for better times. It is, perhaps, not too much to infer that the priest thus connected with Owen was the person who secretly performed the marriage ceremony between him and Catherine, and that the servant was witness to the wedlock. The London Chronicle vindicates the honor of the queen in words not very complimentary to her spouse. This year, one Owen, a man knee of birth, knee of livelihood, break out of Newgate at searching time, the which Owen had privily wedded Queen Catherine, and had three or four children by her, unknown to the common people till she was dead and buried. Catherine's eldest boys must have been very young at the time of her death, since they remained inmates of a nunnery under the care of the abbess of Barking till the year 1440. They were wholly neglected by the court, for, till the abbess supplicated most urgently, no money had been paid for the sustenance of these neglected little ones, after the death of the mother. Soon after the abbess had drawn the attention of Henry the Sixth to the existence of the children of his unfortunate mother, he placed them under the care of discreet priests, to be brought up chastely and virtuously. The tutelage of the king himself had, at this time, ceased by the laws of England. If Catherine had survived till this period, she would have been differently treated. For more than one old historian asserts, 
that Henry the Sixth never forgave his uncle Gloucester the harsh usage his mother had experienced. As soon as the young king attained his majority, he allowed Owen Tudor an annuity of forty pounds per annum, which for certain causes, him moving, he gave him out of his privy purse by a special grace. The eldest son of Catherine and Owen was married, by the influence of Henry the Sixth, to Margaret Beaufort, the heiress of the house of Somerset. At the palace of Reading, his royal half-brother bestowed on him the title of Richmond. This was done amidst the rejoicings for the birth of Edward, Prince of Wales, and the festivities in celebration of the king's restoration to health and reason. Edmund took precedence of all other English peers. He died in his twentieth year, leaving an infant son, afterwards Henry the Seventh. The next brother, Jasper Tudor, was created Earl of Pembroke, the same day that his brother received the title of Richmond. The third son lived and died a monk at Westminster. Owen Tudor himself was taken into some sort of favor, but never graced with any title, or owned by Henry the Sixth as his father-in-law, as may be plainly seen by a deed dated so late as 1460, just before the Battle of Northampton, where the king declares, that out of consideration of the good services of that beloved squire, our Owen is tutor, we for the future take him into our special grace, and make him park-keeper of our parks in Denby, Wales. This was granted when the king was in a distressed state, and the old warrior, his father-in-law, had drawn his Agincourt sword in his cause. After the defeat and death of Richard, Duke of York, at Wakefield, a Lancastrian army, commanded by Jasper, Earl of Pembroke, and his father, Owen Tudor, pursued the Earl of March, who, turning fiercely at bay, defeated them at Mortimer's Cross. Jasper made a successful retreat, but his father, with true Welsh obstinacy, positively refused to quit the lost field. He was taken prisoner, and as he was the first victim on whom Edward had the opportunity of wreaking his vengeance for the death of York and Rutland, he ordered Owen Tudor's head to be smitten off in Hereford Marketplace, with two or three Lloyds and Howells, his kinsmen and comrades. Such was the end of the second husband of Queen Catherine, who lost his life stoutly battling for the cause of Lancaster. When Henry the Seventh ascended the throne of England, he caused the Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey, with the tomb of Queen Catherine, to be demolished for the purpose of building a new and stately chapel, in the place of the epitaph destroyed, which must, in its assertion that Queen Catherine died widow to Henry V, have proved very embarrassing to the Tudors. The following lines were hung up, which were evidently written after Henry VII's ascension. Here lies Queen Catherine closed in grave, the French king's daughter fair, and of thy kingdom, Charles the Sixth, the true undoubted heir. Twice joyful wife in marriage, matched to Henry V by name, because through her he nobled was, and shined in doubled fame. The king of England by descent, and by Catherine's right, the realm of France he did enjoy, triumphant king of might. A happy queen to Englishmen she came right grateful here, and four days space they honored God, with lips in reverent fear. Henry the Sixth, this queen brought forth, with painful labor plight, in whose empire France was then, and he an English white. Under no lucky planet born unto himself or throne, but equal with his parents both in pure religion. Of Owen Tudor, after this, thy next son Edmund was, 
O Catherine, unrenowned prince, that in glory pass. Henry the Seventh, a Briton pearl, a gem of England's joy, a peerless prince was Edmund's son, a good and gracious Roy. Therefore a happy wife this was, a happy mother pure, thrice happy child, with grand dame she more than thrice happy, sure. Although Henry the Seventh had demolished the tomb of his grandmother, it is certain that he had not caused her remains to be exhumed, since he mentions her in his will as still interred in the chapel, and it is evident that he intended to restore her monument. Specially as the body of our grand dame of right noble memory, Queen Catherine, daughter of the King of France, is interred within our monastery of Westminster, and we propose shortly to translate thither the relics of our uncle of blessed memory, Henry the Sixth, and whether we die within the realm or not, our body is to be buried in the said monastery, that is to say, in the chapel where our said grand dame lies buried. When Henry the Seventh was interred, the corpse of Catherine was exhumed, and as her ungracious descendant, Henry the Eighth, did not fulfill his father's intention of restoring her tomb, the bones of the unfortunate queen never found a final resting place till the commencement of the present century. When exhumed, the queen's corpse was found to be in extraordinary preservation. It was, therefore, shown as a curiosity to persons visiting Westminster Abbey for at least three centuries. Weaver, in his funeral monuments, thus mentions its state in the time of Charles I. Here lieth Catherine, queen of England, wife to Henry V, in a chest or coffin, with a loose cover, to be seen and handled of any who much desire it, and who, by her own appointment, inflicted this penance on herself, in regard to her disobedience to her husband, for being delivered of her son, Henry the Sixth at Windsor, which place he forbade. In the reign of Charles the Second, the poor queen was made a common spectacle, for that quaint compound of absurdities, Pepys journalizes, with infinite satisfaction, that he had, this day kissed a queen, and that he might make this boast, he had kissed the mummy of Catherine the Fair, shown for the extra charge of two pence to the curious in such horrors. Late in the reign of George the Third, the same disgusting traffic was carried on, for Hutton reprobates it in his tour through the sights of London, this exordium probably drew the attention of the then Dean of Westminster, for the wretched remains of Catherine the Fair have reposed since then, sheltered from public view, in some nook of the vaults in Westminster Abbey. End of section 10. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.